Thank you everyone for coming to the Chess Journal Club webinar. Um, today uh, we have with us our esteemed authors, Dr. Lashant and Dr. White from the University of Rochester. I am Nicholas Kolaitis from the University of California, San Francisco, um, and I will be moderating this session. Unfortunately, my co-moderator, Dr. Gallo, was unable to be with us today. So I will start by allowing uh, Dr. Lashant and Dr. White to introduce themselves to us, uh, and then we'll get into the interesting article we have in front of us today. Hi, I'm Dan Lashant. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, I'm a pulmonologist by training, and I have a strong focus on pulmonary vascular disease, um, along with Dr. White here. And and really, uh, my research focus has been trying to incorporate technology to improve um, our clinical assessments in pulmonary hypertension. My name is Jim White, I'm a professor of medicine, pharmacology, and physiology here at the university, the founding director of our uh, accredited PH program, and uh, very happy to be uh, Dan's mentor as we try to improve in this particular uh, line of work on a really important functional test in pulmonary hypertension, the six-minute walk. So thank you very much. And uh, with that, we'll talk about your journal article, Cardiac Effort to Compare Clinic and Remote Six-Minute Walk Testing in Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension. And so to begin, I'd like to just ask for the viewers for you to give us a brief one to two sentence statement on the primary objectives of your paper. What were you looking for in this paper and, and um, what were your goals when you set out to do this research? So uh, this actually started at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, Jim actually went to New York City to serve in some underserved uh, hospitals. And I had two small kids at home, so I was not able to go with him. Um, and when I would check in with Jim, I'd always have different ideas and I, I ran different things off of him. And, and this one, I, I talked to him. So this was using this technology that we had just started to use before the pandemic. Um, and after talking with Jim, really the objective we wanted to look at was, could we perform the six-minute walk test at home using actigraphy? When we incorporate our digital biomarker cardiac effort, would that account for shorter walk courses that, that are at home? Um, and then we also wanted to see, could we use any of the raw acceleration data to come up with an objective number to go along with the six-minute walk test distance? Thank you. And, and so for the pulmonary hypertension provider, it's quite important, the six-minute walk distance. But, you know, some of our viewers are, are not pulmonary hypertension providers. And so hope, hopefully you can walk me through a little bit about what the importance is of the six-minute walk distance in pulmonary hypertension risk assessment and in pulmonary hypertension clinical decision-making. So the, the six-minute walk test is... Uh... Is, is the test that you love to hate, right? And, and so for, for those of us who have um, been engaged in pH research for 25 years, it, it served as the uh, primary endpoint in most of the pivotal drug trials for the drugs that um, I suspect most all of your listeners are familiar with. And in fact, dates before that, 15, 20 years. And, and in fact, uh, my young partner here educated me on the literature that, that when the six-minute walk test was first um, evaluated, they looked at time points as short as two minutes and as long as 12 minutes. And interestingly, the two-minute walk was too short. Even really impaired people could walk for two minutes. 
And the 12 minute walk was too long. What did I mean by too long? It, there was so much variability. People wander around and look up at the ceiling and look at what's on the halls and, and they had too much time on their hands. And there ended up being a big difference between people with longer walks, probably having nothing to do with physiology. And so the Goldilocks spot was the six minutes where it was long enough to differentiate the degree of impairment in a population of impaired people but not too long that, that the variability ended up being the dominant factor. And so, you know, what's beautiful about the six minute walk? Well, it assesses a really important daily function. How far can you walk up and down a hallway at your own pace? And that replicates much of what we need to do during the day to take care of ourselves as humans. It's also very easy to implement with a very minimal amount of equipment and staff. And so the six minute walk has a lot of beauty to it. And we know from years of research that there is a relationship between six minute walk and symptoms. There's a relationship between six minute walk and physiology. And so it is a very attractive test from that perspective. And we also know that the six minute walk has tons of warts and the warts really relate to that longer walking distance. And people have talked about a ceiling effect. And I think the work that Dan has done has very clearly shown that, that there's not a ceiling effect. And in fact, beautiful work at Mahari and Vanderbilt published right around the time that Dan published his second paper, drills down into the fact that in healthies, there's no ceiling effect. There's no, I mean, 500 meters, 600 meters, 700 meters. And Dan and I take care of plenty of well-compensated patients who can walk five to 600 meters. So the idea that there's a ceiling effect needs to be thrown away. What there is, is a very large amount of variability for longer walks. And so when we talk about a ceiling effect, what people meant back in the day was, well, it's hard to find a difference when people start walking further. That's true, but that's not about a ceiling effect. It's about the fact that the noise gets so big and Dan's first papers really illustrate that noise with one of our clinic patients walking 500 meters one day and 550 meters the next day for no apparent reason. And, and that is the magnitude of signal that we need to see with a new therapy. And so there's a lot of noise in longer walks and the cardiac effort seeks to ameliorate that noise by tying physiology and effort directly to walking distance. So in, for those of you who haven't thought much about the six minute walk, I hope that gives a nice encapsulation about both its uh, strengths and liabilities as a, as a functional test in any chest disease. And specifically, can you comment on its incorporation into the risk stratification tools that we use in pulmonary hypertension? Oh, sure. So, so the risk stratification has evolved as a, as a field from the early days when uh, Val McLaughlin and, and Mike Magoon published a beautiful figure in circulation and sort of um, postulated about the things that might contribute to risk. And Ray Benza uh, led the reveal cohort uh, over here on this side of the Atlantic and, and colleagues from France and, and uh, Sweden and, and the German aligned countries um, did similar work across the Atlantic. And what we've all come to see interrogating different databases in different ways is that three key variables are useful in predicting risk. And one of them is symptoms. One of them is an NT-proBNP 
And one of them is some functional assessment and, and all of the risk scores use six minute walk in that. And, and so some functional assessment, some ability to walk up and down the hall is necessary in discriminating people who are for reveal like two very low risk walking greater than 440 meters, intermediate risk or, or very high risk because of their the severity of their functional impairment. Thank you. Uh, and so, you know, now that we've established the importance of the six minute walk distance in our clinical trial endpoints in pulmonary hypertension, as well as in our risk stratification, maybe you could cue me into why the pandemic wanted, made you want to look at remote walk distances um, and cardiac effort. And what about the pandemic changed our ability to measure and our ability to feel that the six minute walk results are reliable? You know, Dan and I, we, we talked back and forth a lot about this. We know that there are colleagues who um, did walks with masks and, 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 you know, said, well, that went fine. And, and we had reservations about that. Um, we know that a lot of our patients um, talked very early on in the pandemic about how much more impaired they felt when they put a mask on. They felt more impaired when, when they did the simple act of, of you know, coming into clinic for a, a, a visit that they really needed in person, or when they just walked in at a slow pace to the grocery store, they felt much more impaired when they when they wore a mask. And so we were very concerned about doing an exercise test while they were wearing a mask, right? And and moreover, um, we we also said, well, what are we going to compare it to? Right? What? Well, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, so so these are people who are already impaired. They, they, they can't walk 700 meters in six minutes. They can only walk 350 meters. So they're, they're severely impaired. And then we're going to put a mask on them. And, and we're going to try to compare that to when they didn't wear a mask and they were already impaired. And yet they're also telling us that they can't, you know, take a couple of steps into the grocery store without feeling really breathless when they put a mask on. In fact, we have patients, and I know listeners out there have patients who actually feel uncomfortable talking in an exam room in a mask and are really desperate to take their mask off as we become more relaxed about that here at the university. So it didn't make sense to us on two levels. First of all, we, we, weren't, we, were, we were concerned about the safety and I know other people have dismissed that concern. And I, don't, I, I really think that there are people who wanna show you how good they are and they're gonna try to walk and they're really gonna get into trouble physiologically with the mask. The second thing, and I think perhaps more important is what value is it? What are you going to compare it to? When somebody does their first walk with a mask, it, what's the difference with the walk without the mask, right? And, and, and you know, so you establish a new baseline. Yeah, maybe, but, you know, th this is, this is uh, evolving and, and now maybe we can do unmasked walks. So what, what do you do with that? And that, that was why we really felt the need to see if there was a way to capitalize on great work, by the way, done uh, uh, from colleagues at Brown and Penn to look at remote walking, we, we thought we could take that a step further. And so with that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about cardiac effort and what specifically are we measuring with cardiac effort and how does this measurement work? Yeah, so the, the cardiac effort story actually started before the pandemic. Jim actually serendipitously had a separate grant before I even started working with him where he was trying to come up with new ways to study right ventricular morphology, function, and 
as a fellow, I kind of heard about the project and was um, listening in on what they were doing. And after the study was completed and uh, we were looking at the data, um, one thing came to, to fruition. So, so patients completed a MUGA scan, so nuclear imaging, um, so we could get objective quantification of the right ventricle. And they also completed a six-minute walk wearing a high-end uh, athletic watch, so using photoplethysmography, so um, light wave technology to measure heart rate uh, based on pulse wave pressure. And, and so really taking that data and we said, well, if somebody is getting better and their stroke volume is improving, they should really exude less heartbeat. So if somebody's stroke volume limited, like we say in pulmonary hypertension, as the stroke volume improves to maintain their cardiac output, they would then need less heartbeats to do it. And so then if somebody uh, piggybacking on the ceiling effect, that if somebody can't walk further because uh, mechanically that's as far as they can walk, they will use less heartbeats. So if somebody has scleroderma and they can only walk 350 meters, but they have significant improvement in their pulmonary hypertension, they're gonna use 20% less heartbeats to do the same distance after a favorable response with therapy. So that's really how the, the cardiac effort story came to light. And then we improved upon it by using ECG technology um, to maximize data acquisition. So um, when you have pulmonary hypertension, scleroderma, um, your pulse wave is gonna be very narrow. So there's a lot of noise in the system or skin thickening makes it harder for the light to then shine in there. And, and there's been publications pre uh, what we were doing in, in Jack, where they were saying that there's just a lot of error in activity trackers measuring heart rate. Um, so we, we found this MC10 device that gave us uh, the best of both worlds, which is raw accelerometry data, as well as uh, electrocardiogram heart rate monitoring. The beauty of cardiac effort in thinking about the combination of physiology, heart rate during walking and walking as a simple hallway activity is that you can minimize the noise from walk to walk. If somebody's foot hurts and they aren't walking as far that day, well, they'll use fewer heartbeats. And if somebody's feeling super motivated because they're, they, they, they've gotten some good news that morning uh, and they, they're walking faster and further because they're in a good mood, well, they'll use more heartbeats because they're stroke volume limited. And, and as Dan said, the for patients who are changing therapy, if you give them a therapy that really works and their stroke volume improves, then what you may see, what we hope to see and what we our data shows is, is that those people will walk a little further, maybe 10 meters further, maybe 15 meters further, maybe 18 meters further, but use a lot fewer heartbeats to do it. So the signal changes in both directions. They walk further and they use less heartbeats to do it because their stroke volume got better with therapy. So the, the cardiac effort really improves upon six minute walk in two ways. It reduces the noise for people who shouldn't change, right? And we already said that that noise is a huge problem at longer walk distances, but it also um, improves the signal for people who should be changing. And, and Dan's data clearly shows that. And he's actually serendipitously showed that people who were getting worse, it changes in the, in the opposite direction. Their walk distance gets a little shorter and the number of heartbeats they use gets a lot longer. We really think that this is gonna be an important physiologic tool in the future of risk assessment. Thank you. So it seems that we've established thus far that the six minute walk or some sort of physiologic test is pivotal 
in our risk assessment of patients with pulmonary hypertension. That the six minute walk distance itself has a lot of variability uh, and it can depend on, as you said, whether the patient has a foot injury that day or whether the patient's feeling great that day because they got good news. And cardiac effort might be a more reliable way to really measure how a patient is functionally doing in that moment. Um, so with that, let's talk a little bit about your study. Uh, so we we talked briefly about the primary objectives of the study. So maybe you could walk me through the study population um, and how you actually perform the methods of your study. Yeah, so if you want to jump to table one, um, really what we, we wanted to do was, in this first go around, because th there's so much concern, or at least there is safety concerns with six-minute walk-up, having um, appropriate study team members there, having a crash cart there and, and, and whatnot, that we wanted to have a, a stable group. We wanted a group where we felt good that they could do the six-minute walk at home. We didn't want to take a bunch of uh, class three, four patients and say, walk unsupervised at home and see what happens. Um, so we had a majority of what you'd expect in a pH population, uh, middle-aged females. Um, and this cohort, their BMI was just below 30. Um, and we did have a mix of idiopathic and uh, connective tissue disease. So we have a, a large connective tissue disease population. And, and, and we're also fortunate that the majority of our patients um, like to participate in research. So nobody heard this study and said, oh, no, this is too, they, they jumped at the bit to try to, to help advance the field. So um, we also wanted a mix of patients as well, not just um, uh, uh, one phenotype of PAH. Um, and so uh, we, we decided this first go around just to use 20 patients. Um, and we asked them to do six minute walk in the clinic. Uh, and by clinic, it's in our research uh, building that's uh, very desolate. And we asked them to do it without a mask because really we wanted to see what is their true physiology during the six minute walk in ideal conditions. And then we wanted to do that same thing at home where we have them walk unmasked, but on a modified course to see what changes, how far do they walk? What is the physiologic toll by, by doing this um, at home without any obstruction um, around their mouth? Um, and so you can see here, the reveal light two was low. Um, their NT pro BMP was at goal. And uh, the majority of patients or all the patients were functional class one, two. Um, and we actually did take two patients on oxygen just to see what impact uh, using oxygen at home would have on feasibility, safety, and, and things like that. Um, and so patients did one walk-in clinic. We gave them the MC10 device. We sent them home. We showed them where to put the sensors on the chest. Um, and so we had them wear two sensors just to try to maximize data acquisition in case there was any issues with participants and not understanding the technology. And, and we asked them to perform one walk um, one day, wait another day, perform another walk, um, and then return the device back to the clinic and then do another walk um, in the research building just to see what is the variability or what is the difference between the two clinic walks and what is the difference between the clinic and home. Um, and so of those 18 completed all of the study uh, activities, two patients actually um, elected not to do the second walk-in clinic just because of rising COVID cases in the area. So ironically, <laughs> we, we understood, uh, understandably said, you know what, that's a good idea. Just mail back the device and we're just going to use one clinic walk for those participants. 
Um, and so it, it was a, a, a success in terms of um, completing it in a pandemic, um, having no masks and no patients or study uh, members actually uh, transmitted the virus to each other during this period. I, I just want to take a second to emphasize the rigor with which Dan approached this and, and emphasize from, for those interested in contributing to the field how important it is when you're thinking about a new kind of assessment to demonstrate that the assessment itself has reproducibility, right? So, you know, people talk about, oh, well, I have a new blood test. I want to measure some new growth factor or some cytokine. And, and we often see publications with a group of healthies and a group of pulmonary hypertensions. And, and, and we see no reproducibility in this novel measurement. And Dan really went after this to say, okay, well, we're going to do the clinic measurement twice and the home measurement twice, and we're gonna look at the in, intrinsic variability of the clinic measurement and the intrinsic variability of the home measurement, and then the difference between the two. And, and I just really wanna emphasize how rigorous he approached his, his data design. And so with that, I, I think probably I'd like to move on to figure one, if that's all right, and we can discuss the results of comparing the clinic walk to its, uh, oh, sorry, uh, figure one and two. So tell me what you're looking at here, and then we'll move on to figure two where we're comparing the clinic walks. So when we, we first got the MC10 device, which we used um, back in 2018, one of the things I told Jim, I was like, you know, this has raw accelerometry data, and really you could do these without any supervision because you could just count the laps. And we didn't make heads or tails of that at the time. We just like, oh, that's an interesting observation. <laughs> um, and so then when the pandemic came and, and we were thinking about this, um, we decided, we're like, wow, actually, we don't need, um, all we need to know is the walk distance that somebody does at home, and we can just count the laps. And so you can between, see between the two dashed lines that that's a line, that's a lap. Um, so when there's slow, uh, when the acceleration goes away, that's when they're, they're not moving. So acceleration stops and they're turning, um, that we could count laps. And, and when you have the full data strip, it's easy to count out like an accordion of, of when they're stopped turning, when they're stopped turning. And and, and um, when you go to, to the next figure, we um, figure C or uh, figure 2C, um, we took our approach of estimating six minute walks. So we counted the laps and um, we compared it to the directly observed uh, measurement by our study team. And, and so what we did was we, at the end of the walk, when there was a partial lap, we would say, you know what, this looks like uh, half of a lap, or this looks like three quarters of a lap, and we would just adjust it and come up with a distance. And we had two blind reviewers look at all of the data strips to say, this is 400 meters, this is 410 meters. And, and when we directly compared to what we estimated for the clinics, what somebody physically observed versus what we estimated, there was a very strong correlation um, that showed that this method seemed to work. I, I want to just point out that Dan and I had, you know, when we were, when, when this paper was actually already published, we, we had the revelation in looking at some, some data with a company a couple of weeks ago, that this is a great way for companies to verify walk distances um, on, on ECRFs, right? So, so, you know, instead of just relying on the coordinator and especially if, you know, there's a, a 40 meter difference or a 60 meter difference in something that doesn't make any sense, you actually would have a way of verifying the data if, if people wore an accelerometer uh, and, and had the heart rate collection at the same time. So you'd end up getting two things for the price of one. You'd verify 
that six minute walk distances were actually came because as two C shows this, this method of using the accelerometer is, is probably better than a coordinator because it's basically error proof, right? You, you know, the, it, I think that there's a real tool here. And, and so then when you go to figure A uh, or figure one, two uh, A, you can see that there was no difference between the two clinic walks. So the first walk, second walk, um, there's no statistical difference. And, and you can see one person actually did have a decrease. They started around 300 and dropped to just above 200. Uh, but for the most part, there was no differences in any of um, the clinic walks. And, and then when you move to, to panel B, um, that's when we started to harness the raw data. So using that raw accelerometry data that we saw in figure one, we came up with a number using uh, mean amplitude deviation, and, and we had some assistance from our data science colleagues at the University of Rochester to come up with this. Um, but what you could see is if you just took the raw six-minute movement and applied the, the mean amplitude deviation formula, you get a number. And then when you take the second walk, you get a number. And, and having no human input at all, just take, harnessing the, the data, there was no statistical change. Now, you can see there was a drop in, in, in one person that was major, and, and we don't have a great reason for why that happened. Um, but at least right now, it, it says that there is the opportunity to harness um, raw accelerometry data when we're using this technology. So there, there may really be something to using accelerometers, not just uh, as ways to monitor activity at home, but actually to improve upon our data collection in six-minute walk, both by verifying the number of uh, laps that people accomplish, but but potentially also by taking humans completely out of the loop. And we're not saying that we're there yet, but but there may be something there. And, and Dan continues to uh, interrogate the raw data to look for things like this. Or at least get credit if somebody doesn't walk a straight line. Because right now, the way you do it is if you just do one lap, that's 90 feet. But if you kind of zigzag and somebody's all over the place, that's extra movement they're not getting credit for that the mean amplitude deviation catches. Yeah. That's great. So, and uh, remind me that clinic one and clinic two, you say that they're on separate days. On average, how far apart were they? Uh, everyone was within two weeks. Two weeks. So fairly similar in terms of their medications. Um, and, and, and an important point is that everybody had to be at least stable on both diuretics and vasodilators for at least 30 days before we did this. Because we didn't want somebody where we're titrating diuretics up and down where one day we catch them on a good day, the next day we catch them on a bad day. So everybody had to be stable on all therapies for at least 30 days. That's great. Um, so certainly the power of this is quite compelling and I agree it could be used in clinical trials uh, as a way to validate the six minute walk distance. Um, so let's move on and let's talk a little bit about what happened when these patients went home. Yeah, so, um, I believe it's figure three, <clears throat> um, we, we had participants, they had to have at least a 30 foot unobstructed walking space and it could go all the way to 90 feet. We didn't cap them saying, if you have access to this, don't do it. But we said at least 30, no more than 90. Um, and we gave them a, a tape measure to take. And we also had them take a picture so we could verify that it was unobstructed, that there wasn't cords everywhere, that there wasn't a step off where they could fall and hurt themselves. and they weren't doing turns that would interpret or that would interfere with our data analyses. Um, and so then we also asked patients to estimate how many laps they completed as well. And so when they did it, we said, keep track of the number that you did. Um, 
And so uh, in figure 3B, what you see is that patients lose track of <laughs> how many laps they do. And so we use that same methodology we used before, just counting the laps with the acceleration data. And we came up with our number. And then we compared it to what patients did. And, and you can see that there is a few walks <laughs> where they, they lost a count of what they were doing and, and it just fell off the curve. But for the most part, um, what patients estimated and what we estimated was very tight. Um, but what we found, which was not surprising, is that people walk less at home. Um, and some of it may be due to the course that they use at home. So if you have a 90-foot walking space, it's long. You, you don't have to think. You just keep going. You turn. You go back. You do 18 laps, and it's a success. If you cut that in half, and now you take that same person and ask them to do a 30- or 40-foot walking space, now all of a sudden they've got to do 36 turns. And what stress that takes on a person, it almost it potentially turns it into a new test. Um, you're, you're making it like a quasi-shuttle test at home. And, and so we, we found that there was about a 20-meter decrease in what somebody did in the clinic versus what they did at home. And that's in 3C. Yes, 3C. Um, and so they walk. So uh, using that as the perfect surrogate for at home, uh, we found that if you take one walk and then you do it in clinic, within two weeks, there's no difference. If you do a walk in the clinic and then somebody goes home in that same stability period, they're going to walk less at home because of the shorter walking distance. There's not a study team member walk or watching them. Um, they're doing it on their own time. Who knows what their mood is? Maybe it's the turns, but they will walk less at home. And there was obviously one exception. Uh, uh, Nick, you can you can highlight the, the one line that is going up. But in general, there were there, there were a very consistent pattern. And on average, as Dan says, it was about a 20 meter difference. And that person was actually a very functional class. That was a functional class one person. And the one thing we don't know is whether they were more power walking. So when our study team members there, they say, walk, don't run, don't jog, they can control it. But when they're at home, they may be super competitive and actually try to outperform themselves. And do you know of the one who got better and the, some of the ones that had more significant declines had 30 versus 90 meter spacing? Because certainly most people don't have 90 meters in a straight hallway in their own house, but presumably- It was very rare. Uh, the person who got better, she did a 90 foot outside. So she had a flat space that was outside 90 and, and she's very- um, Fit. Like she, like Jim's saying, she's very compensated and, and does well. And, and I think she was just maybe walking a little faster than she should have been. Right. As, as Dan said, we, we actually have no, we have no knowledge about whether these people, whether she was almost running, right? Like in the, in the, in, in the staff member, they, they're like, you know, you have to walk one, you know, heel toe walk. And, and, and this, this, this young person definitely might have been almost running. So um, sounds like there is some variability in the walk distance, but look at let's talk about the mean amplitude deviation and how that works. Yeah, so more just to, to as this exploratory analysis. So we found that walk distance went down, and we also found that mean amplitude deviation changed as well. So that's what we hope to find that if walk distance goes down the change in acceleration would also go down because some of the acceleration that's exuded during the walk would be less. And so that's what we found when we, we took the raw amplitude deviation. And the one nice thing about that in, in D is that 
um, it's not reliant on a patient reporting their walk distance. So there may have been another person where they said they were walking on a, a 80 foot walking space, but in reality, they could have done 60, which is why their walk distance improved significantly at home as well. Um, the mean amplitude deviation is blind to that. It doesn't matter what kind of course you're walking on because it's just the change in acceleration. We don't actually use any um, distance when we calculate it. So when we compared uh, the mean amplitude deviation versus the estimated six minute walk, you can see that there's still a strong correlation and this was all remote data. Um, so that was very, uh, I actually did include a few in-clinic walks as well, sorry. Um, but you can see that when we estimate six minute walk, and we calculate mean amplitude deviation and E that there's a strong correlation between the two. So, so 3E really is trying to emphasize the fact that you could imagine getting some useful data. We're not saying it's the same, but you could imagine getting some useful data by having a patient walk in their home for six minutes wearing an, acti an, an actigraph or an MC10 activity monitor or a fourth frontier device, some sort of triaxial accelerometer, you could assign them to walk for six minutes and get some useful information that would correspond to the submaximal test we know is six minute walk. And, and that's in 3E. And, I, you know, I think this is, again, this, this, this part of the data was not what we set out to find. This is truly the exploratory part of the data. We set out to look at six minute walk distance. We set out to look at accelerometry as a measure of six minute walk distance. And we set out to, to look at the cardiac effort, which we'll get into in a second. And, and, and you know, just building on the research endeavor, Dan read uh, Steve Kaywitz's paper looking at accelerometry and this mean amplitude deviation and said, oh my gosh, we have this huge data set. We could explore mean amplitude deviation in this data set and, and started to find some things that I think are interesting. And certainly it seems that this could at the very least just be used as a verification that your patients are not these ones here. Where they for sure, for flat. sure, right? It, you know, it really, it really drives home this idea that if you wear a triaxial accelerometer and you do not need somebody else to record the distance, you can, you can get the distance off of the accelerometer at the end of the test and not rely on a, on a study coordinator who got distracted by somebody walking in front of them or somebody started to talk to them or whatever, right? Great. So uh, let's talk a little bit about heart rate measurements. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what we're looking at in figure four um, and how this was done. So figure four, A through C, kind of confirms what we, we published in our initial, um, or what we found in our initial annals ATS and what we published in pulmonary circulation. And that's just that photoplethysmography heart rate um, monitoring is not the same as ECG. And so using um, a, a, a hospital grade pulse oximeter that measured um, oxygen saturation continuously during the six minute walk, as well as heart rate, we compared what we calculated with ECG. And you can see <clears throat> that the peak heart rate is underreported um, in, in figure A versus what ECG calculates. You can see the heart rate at six minutes is, is lower with photoplethysmography. And when we calculate heart rate expenditure, which is the number that we use um, to calculate cardiac effort, that it also underreports it. And that photoplethysmography, as we talked about earlier, um, just doesn't capture the whole story because of scleroderma, low uh, pulse wave pressure, um, motion artifacts. So this is why we, we uh, decided to use ECG to do this because 
relying on photoplethysmography, you're going to lose data. And this is just, we think this is, is uh, the perhaps one of the most important pieces of the, of the paper because everybody wants the wristwatches to work, right? We all want the wristwatches to work because if the wristwatches work, all this is so much easier. But the answer is they don't. This was a, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, this was a hospital grade known in, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, w- whether it's because, this, you know, we know the stroke volume is impaired in our patients and that's going to make the pulse pressure smaller, right? So the photoplethysmography signal is dampened. We know that our patients have low cardiac output and they're going to have some peripheral vasoconstriction in their arm and in their wrist and their hands, and that's going to dampen the signal, right? We, they're moving, right? By definition, they're moving and that's going to create motion artifact. And so you have a smaller signal and more noise. It just doesn't work. And, and I've talked to colleagues literally around the world. I was in a European tour and everybody's faces just got long because, because they, they want the wristwatches to work because if the wristwatches would work, all this would be so much easier. The answer is they don't. And, and the wonderful news is, is the fourth frontier, this is a little bit of an uh, advertisement. Mm-hmm. I'm, not a paid, I'm not a paid consultant, uh, but fourth frontier is a running company that has this new chest device that is just amazing and, and much cheaper than prior and, and really captures EKG beautifully. And so I think, you know, when you look at A, B, and C, you just get the message. It consistently underperforms and sometimes a lot, right? You look at some of these in figure A, you look at the, the um, not only is the love, the standard bias different in a Bland Altman plot of 12, but the limits of agreement are out there at 40% different, right? In, in panel 4A. And, and the, it goes through in 4B and 4C that it just doesn't work. And so if you really care about heart rate, whether it's at six minutes, whether it's the total number of heart heartbeats used during the six minute walk, or whether it's peak, you're always going to be wrong if you use the wristwatch. Great. And then uh, in these panels down here, we're looking at cardiac effort, heartbeats, um, and over the mean input distance, and the estimation of the six-minute walk distance. Um, so tell me a little bit about what we're looking at in these panels. Yeah, so so figure D is, is our home run panel. So this is really what we, we were aiming to see was if you correct for heart rate, does that then make it more of a comparable clinic walk? And, and that's exactly what we found was that there was no difference between the cardiac effort in clinic versus the cardiac effort at home. And so whether somebody's um, walking a little, if somebody's walking less, their heart rate, as Jim was talking about finding a difference, this just helps bring them together. And so if you walk less, you're probably going to use less heartbeats, or if you use the same, at least it keeps it closer. Um, and, and so that's what we found here. And, and um, the same thing is we, we uh, explored using heartbeats relative to mean amplitude deviation. So Instead of using distance, we said, well, what if you just take the raw accelerometry unit? And, and that didn't perform as well, but you can see it's still, uh, it was better than raw distance alone. Uh, that just work uh, adjusted for stress on the heart is, is a better way to assess things. Um, and, and same with figure F, you can just see there's a strong correlation between the estimated six minute walk distance um, and, and what uh, um, we got with this uh, heart rate per mean amplitude deviation. So the, the, again, the point is that the, you, you, reduce the, you reduce the noise in the measurement and whether that noise is from a shorter hallway or from not having a staff member there to encourage them or having somebody 
practically run, <laughs> whatever, whatever the noise is, you reduce the noise by matching it to their physiology. If they're going to walk further and their stroke volume limited, they have to use more heartbeats. If they walk less and their stroke volume limited, they're going to use less heartbeats. And so you just account for that effort or that leg pain or, or whatever else by, by incorporating cardiac effort into the measurement. And so it seems like you've established one, the importance of the six minute walk distance or some physiologic measure that it can be done remotely and that using accelerometry based measurements, specifically with the heart rate measurement um, of cardiac effort, you have more reliable remote measurements of patients, physiologic parameters and their estimated six minute walk distance. Um, so how has this changed your clinical practice? So we're, we're embarking on phase two of the study where we are doing this in a larger group of patients. We're doing it in, in some functional class three. We're requiring a support person. Um, for this study, it was strongly recommended but not mandated because they're functional class one, two. Um, but the other thing is, is we still haven't, and, and hopefully we're getting there, um, but we, we haven't been able to do six minute walk in the clinic still. And, and we think that as the automation of this technology improves, we will be able to incorporate this in drug titration. So in some of our prostacyclines where we're titrating up, we can use this as a marker of treatment response and potentially finding a therapeutic dose where things have improved and we're not just giving them side effect for no more benefit. Um, and, and so that's kind of where we're, we're working on this next is trying to incorporate it in the remote assessment. So you don't have to wait every three months in clinics where you are doing walks. You can do spot assessments and actually get pretty good, reliable data that, that has meaning to it. Um, and that can help improve management remotely. And, you know, with regard to clinic, let's be, let's be honest here. This, this device that, that we used in this paper is an $1,800 device. And so we, we, um, you know, could not be giving this to people for, for clinical use. On the other hand, the fourth frontier device that literally has, you know, emerged in the past year, and, and we keep talking about it because we're just so excited about it, uh, th this, this device is 500 bucks. And so the idea that, you know, you could have three or four of these in clinic and, and, you know, if you had particularly ill patients, you could, you could loan them one for a couple of months while you were, as Dan said, titrating their uh, triprostanil that, I mean, that's pretty exciting. Right. And, and so I think we're, we're, we are moving, you know, it's going to, it's years down the road and, and this guy is super impatient. He wants it all to happen yesterday, but uh, it, 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 you know, years down the road, you could really imagine as this technology becomes cheaper and cheaper, um, many patients who were uh, more well-to-do might just purchase it themselves and, and, and use it themselves in, in understanding their physiology, right? We can imagine home-based rehab programs that use this as with insurance reimbursement for the device, right? And, and I think we can easily imagine drug trials where the uh, sponsor uses this to, to assess how patients are doing at earlier time points, right? You could imagine having week four and week eight visits with remote six-minute walk at home. So I think that there's a lot of exciting uses of this technology, especially as the price comes down and the reliability of the, of the data uh, increases. We're also really excited about the possibility for our under-resourced colleagues in, in, um, you know, in Latin America, in, in Asia, for example, being able to assess their patients with, with uh, a device that's non-invasive and, and, and could be readily within their financial reach. 
I also see a value in it in just monitoring stable patients as well. You know, I, in addition to pulmonary hypertension, I, I'm a lung transplant physician and I, we do remote home spirometries and we have patients that will develop a drop in their spirometry that occurs before they detect symptoms or before they detect, uh, they have their next clinic visit. And so it could be used potentially in that scenario for a pulmonary hypertension population to detect changes in their six minute walk distance at home if it's done on a regular interval. Agree completely. <laughs> yeah. And Dan is very excited about the possibility that, you know, this could give early warning, especially, you know, what one of the things that 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 the Vanderbilt group and uh has Penn, uh, everybody who's looked at activity in our patients knows that they do almost nothing. Dan, Dan asked me, he gave me a little quiz the other day to see uh, what the least walking was of one of our patients. One of our Romodulin patients at home walks 400 steps in a day. And, and so, you know, Dan's idea is that, that this it, it, requiring patients to put something like this on and walk for, you know, a couple of minutes could give us tremendous insight for our less active patients so that they can tell us about uh, physiologic worsening before they detect worsening symptoms because they just don't do anything. Great. And with that, I think I would like to say, Thank you to Dr. White and Dr. Lachant for their excellent discussion of their paper. Um, any parting words you want to leave us with uh, before we sign off? No, uh, we appreciate you giving us the opportunity to present this exciting work. And, and we think the real value of this is it can be done in anywhere. So it doesn't require a 90-foot unobstructed walking space. So whether you're in Rochester, New York, and you've got five feet of snow out, you can do it in your living facility. And, and so it doesn't, it's not reliant on warm weather, going to a clinic and a great way to improve remote care. Nick, thanks so much for this opportunity. It was really fun to, uh, to talk about Dan's great work. And, and we look forward to this getting incorporated into uh, research, into clinical practice and the risk assessment over the next five to 10 years. Congratulations again. This is wonderful work. And I look forward to seeing it in our clinic soon.